You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, with your hosts, Sadika Bodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of Top Rank Professional and Executive Search Firm. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is a Corridor Business Journal podcast. On today's episode, Cedric Ellis, Executive Vice President and Chief Enterprise Services Officer of CUNA Mutual Group. The thing that I've always tried to uh, talk to leaders about is doing your own work. You know, you know, moving along that journey around understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion and doing what you need to do to show up right, um, to show up in a way in which is inclusive, and to do all that you can do to be a good champion at knocking down barriers to inclusion. We'll be right back. Green State Credit Union is proud to sponsor Diversity Straight Up. Established in 1938, Green State is Iowa's largest financial cooperative serving nearly 250,000 members of all walks of life. Green State's products include checking accounts, loans, investments, insurance, commercial services, mortgages, and credit cards. Profits are returned to members in the form of better rates on deposits and loans. We encourage you to learn more at greenstate.org. Green State is federally insured by the NCUA and is an equal housing opportunity lender. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is also sponsored by Alliant Energy. Welcome to another episode of the Corridor Business Journal's Diversity Straight Up. I'm your host, Sarika Bakta. And I'm Anthony Arrington, and we're about to have a little fun today. We'll get into it with Cedric Ellis. Who's executive vice president at CUNA Mutual. We'll talk a little bit about him. Uh, we're going to have a good time. We're going to get under the hood and have a great conversation. Yeah, but something's on my mind. There's something on my mind. So I've been on uh, quite a few uh, business travels, vacation travels, and I've noticed that as you engage in a dialogue with someone, everything is great. Suddenly you have a conversation about mask and vaccine. Mm. And suddenly the individual that you connected with maybe the dialogue and the tone just shifts immediately. Mm. I was uh, in a uh, restaurant, um, I was you know, masked up and um, I could still engage in dialogue with individuals. And uh, this individual that I was having a conversation about, he said, I'm not you know, vaccinated. Do you have any you know, concerns of you know, interacting with me? I said, not at all. And then we were engaging in a group dialogue and uh, someone else said, well, I'm a Republican, I'm vaccinated, and uh, you should too because you indicate you're a Republican. It's just interesting to see the dynamics of the conversation. We were having a very healthy one. And then um, at the end of the night, another couple comes up and uh, attacked the individual that I met saying, thank you for ruining my night. I was having a great time until you started to talk about your perspectives on vaccination at masks. So they're dipping into your conversation? Correct. And so the other gentleman that I was speaking with said, this was a private conversation that we were engaging in, and you don't know much about the context that we were having a conversation. Hmm. But then this other couple, as soon as they were leaving, the, the woman looked at me and she said, and um, you're part of the problem because you were you know, having a conversation with him. 
it just blew my mind. Yeah. I'm an individual that is very inclusive and diversity of thought, diversity of perspectives is part of our backgrounds, part of our experiences. And for me, when I, I didn't even get a chance to speak because she threw that bomb and turned around and walked away. And I said, I don't think I'm part of the problem. I'm actually, I think, part of the healthy solution of engaging in dialogue because again, that individual's perspective about mask and vaccine is a sliver of who they are. And I want to understand why. And that's, I think, in our workplaces, in our community, and in our families, I'm seeing relationships just well, evaporate. We politicize the whole thing. And I mean, in my, in my thought, I don't, we politicized what it means to think about science, and we politicized what it means for everybody to, to have a choice. Like, I, I, I'm vaccinated, but I, I'm, I'm not a big medicine person. I don't like to take a lot of medicine, but I took the vaccine, but I don't fault anybody who doesn't want to take it for, for medical reasons, you know, but the problem is we politicize it and we went into this conspiracy theory and the, all these things and everybody has a different feeling. And, and there are some people that legitimately don't want to, don't want to take it, but we've, we've taken it to an entire new, new level. Um, it, it just blows my mind that, that, that we forgot just how to be rational people when it comes to medicine. Yeah, agree. Whatever your feeling is. I don't know, Cedric, any, any thoughts from you? Yeah, so it's, you know it's interesting. So I I um, I have a very large family. I have six sisters and four brothers. Um, about fifty percent of us are vaccinated, and I have participated in dialogues with them about the whys and the why nots. Um, so I do think it is unfortunate that it has gone gone to this place of being really politicized. And I think unfortunately the last administration um, was a large part of that. Um, but. Um, one of the things that I've learned to try to do is I try to meet people where they are in terms of understanding their whys and why not, yeah. and, you know, uh, you know, including some of my brothers and sisters of whom say, you know, it's still experimental and they really want to wait until the FDA approves it beyond uh, emergency use. I have to respect that. Um, and then I have to do all that I can do to make sure that I'm protected um, to the degree to which I can, whether it's mask wearing and distance, you know, maintaining distance. But, but I think that it's, it's unfortunate that it's gotten to this place where um, it has actually disintegrated many relationships, um, including yeah. some of my own people who I thought were friends because of the position that I took have decided no longer to engage with me. Yeah. Um, I think That's that sad part. My, my biggest concern has been that we haven't gotten to the place where we all respect humanity and can come together to, to do what is necessary to continuously elevate, you know, this yeah. common shared humanity that we have. Yeah, I think it's a sad place that we're at. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, that's been on my mind, and yeah. it's not going to go away. And I think with any topic, any issue, divergent perspectives are going to exist. Yep. And I've always been about give grace, get grace. Absolutely. That's the only way that I think we're going to get to the heart of humanity, yeah, Cedric, yeah. as you had indicated. Yeah. Well, I know that we can probably have a mini episode we just could. on this topic in of itself. Um, yet we're here to um, engage yeah. in a dialogue with you, Cedric. Yeah. So, um, Anthony, Let's, you want to share yeah. a little bit uh, about Cedric Absolutely. for our listeners? Let's tell the audience a little bit about Cedric's background. Cedric Ellis is the executive vice president and the chief enterprise services offer for CUNA Mutual Group, the global insurance company. Uh, Ellis's accomplishments include designing succession planning process, HR delivery models, helping rebuild the Fireman's Fund New York City office from an HR perspective after 9-11, after the terrorist attacks, and serving on the enterprise-wide diversity strategy work team for Global Insure Alliance. 
And he also was managing human resource fields for offices and branches, employing more than 10,000 people. Ellis graduated from Assumption College, and he's got a bachelor's degree in English and a social rehabilitation services. So welcome, Ellis. We're Thank glad you. To I have appreciate you. it. Thanks glad so to have you. Thank you for joining session. us today. Quite an Great. accomplished uh, life. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So, I, you know, I grew up in um, Waterbury, Connecticut. I was born and raised in Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, my parents, uh, Edward, who are now deceased, Edward and Ruth Ellis, they actually migrated um, to Connecticut during the Great Migration from uh, uh, Southern Virginia. Um, <laughs> and they actually migrated to Connecticut in search of a better, a better life. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution was taking place. Um, Waterbury, Connecticut was the brass capital of the world and lots of foundries. And my father came and got a job in the foundries here. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because they shifted from being sharecroppers. They were sharecroppers in the South um, and they sought a new life. Um, my mom ended up, you know, largely a domestic cleaning um, folks houses, you know, wealthy folks houses who at that time happened to be mostly white folks. Um, and you know, they ended up having 11 kids, um, you know, all of us included, myself included, um, and made Connecticut our home. Um, I'll tell you this, uh, as, as one of 11 and one who grew up, and I would still say relative, you know, working class poverty, um, mm -hmm. because both my parents did, did in fact work, but often continued to struggle. Um, you know, as a result of that, we moved around a lot um one two we also ended up landing um you know the last part of my childhood um living in um, public housing um also known as projects we call them the pjs mm -hmm. um yep <laughs> i grew up in, in in public housing um i was fortunate i guess i'll say um to have gone to a private high school um and i think that private high school actually um set a really strong kind of foundation for me in terms of education and my career. But the, the most critical thing that I would love to add about, you know, my uh, upbringing was I had an incredible amount of uh, mentors who really kind of helped me find the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and while my parents were one, not able to read because neither of them could read. Um, and uh, they, they still saw the value in education. They still, you know, push every single one of yeah. us to at least finish high school. And um, I owe a great deal of gratitude to them just for showing me really strong and deep work ethic. Yeah. But they also showed me values of how to treat people. Um, and you, know, you, you spoke of, you know, being graceful with folks. I think that was the core of how my parents raised all of us. And that is actually has been a lot of my guiding principle in terms of how I live life today, how I work, how I interact with people. So that's, you know, pretty much yeah. how I look at things. Glad to hear that. We, uh, it's, uh, and, and as we were thinking about that, that kind of leads right into our next question, because I wanted to know as you, as you, what were some milestones in your life or some things that happened or around your, your upbringing, um, around equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement um, that really made you value it? You know, when was there was there a particular moment in your life that you was there a particular incident where you realized, you know, I've got to I've got to be a champion of, of equity or diversity. I know I'm different. Or can you talk? I'll answer this question a couple of ways. I'll answer it um, first by talking about what I think was really pivotal for me um, as a kid. So 
during you know the mid 60s early 70s when i was a kid um a lot of the public school systems were really hell-bent on you know, desegregation if you will and integration um so i was a product of busing so i lived in a predominantly black neighborhood i was bused um, from my neighborhood 30 minutes to predominantly white schools um and really saw kind of the you know you know, going from a neighborhood school where I could walk to, um, to being bused to you know, a more affluent neighborhood, I immediately saw kind of disparities and in terms of how money and race um, played out, um, per particularly in public education. When all still governed by the same system, depending upon where your school was, you got different things. Um, you got access to different things. Um, and I will tell you, yes, I benefited from having been bused um, and that the quality of the, of the education, the quality of the facilities, the quality of things that you have access to was significantly different than the neighborhood school that I used to go to. So there, there in, in, in light, I saw some differences and, and I would say that they had some imprint on how I looked at inequity and accessibility um, because it started to really kind of push me to ask questions like why um, you know why is this this way why isn't why don't we have the same things in my neighborhood what so I, I I started to see some of that pretty early on um, and then having gone to private schools um, from the projects um, which was predominantly white um, I went to um, I think there were maybe 15 um, other black students um, at, at that school. Um, and just seeing those uh, inequities in terms of economics um, also left an impression on me. So I would say this, that uh, when I first started working professionally, um, I, I wanted to be a teacher uh, because I thought that you know, education was the great equalizer. Um, and access to education um, was also, you know, pretty important for folks if you were going to, you know, continue to progress um, in society. So I, I became a teacher. Um, I will tell you, um, I was not a good teacher. Uh, and, and, and the thing I learned about being a teacher was it wasn't necessarily uh, the students. Um, my, I was a high school English teacher. The biggest challenges that I had were with parents. Um, parents who didn't like the fact that you gave their kid a C. Um, um, and that was the biggest challenge. So I left teaching um, and joined the corporate world um, and went to go work for uh, Aetna, um, the insurance company. And there got, I would say, uh, head first, you know, drinking from a fire hose, really indoctrinated into what this world of, at that time, um, affirmative action. Um, because I started in human resources, got really uh, deep into affirmative action. And, you know, at the time, Aetna was um, a government uh, uh, contractor, so they had to abide by certain affirmative action rules. So I was responsible for helping implement those rules within the company. So I immediately start to see um, the, the impact of policy, the impact of, you know, even actions and, and norms within an organization really set people apart, typically race, gender, 
um, you name it, those things kind of had some impact in the work environment. So I, it really began to kind of shape how I thought about and how I looked at things related to equity. And then at the time, we didn't have that word. Um, you know, it was all about, you know, you know, how do we make the world more multicultural? How do we make our company more multicultural? Um, you know, I think the, the, the terminology that's being used today, um, I, I, I think it's more helpful um, because it, I think it makes it more comfortable for white folks um, because it's less in your face. And it's, it is in fact more inclusive because I think in the past, uh, most white people didn't necessarily see and, and still some today, diversity as them. Um, and if you, if you think about what diversity really is, is about everyone. So diversity is all of us. It's not just you know, the, the them, it's us. Yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. We always say diversity is differences and the diversity yes. pendulum has swung so far to one extreme that individuals, um, even um, individuals that are part of the white community, can't connect and resonate because for so long it felt as if they couldn't be part of that conversation just because of how the word diversity was used, et cetera. So we're here to bring the diversity pendulum back into balance and say diversity is differences. How do you leverage diversity as an asset with equity, inclusion, and engagement to really drive innovation? Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at AlliantEnergy.com slash careers. Um, so speaking of uh, corporate America and uh, your work in there, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, CUNA has taken positions on social movements, um, such as your statements on social justice, as well as CUNA is being a uh, founding member of the Credit Union's DEI Collective, in which all of you have adopted the statement of commitment and solidarity for the Black and African American community. I wanted to share this context with the listeners because what we're seeing from our clients is that um, increasingly companies are really assessing their corporate social responsibility. And with all the social movements out there, um, they're trying to figure out how many you know, uh, statements do we adopt? Do we just pick a few? And if we only pick a few, is it inclusive enough? Or where do we draw the line? Or do we stay neutral and take the stance that this should not be a workplace concern as it is socially and or politically related? So it's been interesting. Um, so one of the things that I've been really uh, trying hard to do at CUNY Mutual is to really talk through you know, what at the core is our purpose. And our purpose really is about helping individuals create financial security, no matter where they stand and no matter what that definition is to them. That's colorblind, it's genderblind. I mean, it, it, it should be you know, open to all, no matter, you know, no matter where you stand or sit in life. I think that it's important. And so I've always thought that it was important for us to really kind of think about what our core is what our core mission is, what our core vision is. And if we're really honoring our core mission vision, you're knocking down all those obstacles that might exist for different segments of our population. So one of the things that we've been trying to do at CUNY Mutual is to you 
you know, you know silence is not an option. Um, so if you're really engaged in providing those kind of solutions to, to people who need them, then you have to know um, or be informed around what's important um, to folks, no matter where they sit. You also have to understand history. You also have to understand, uh, you know, really how can we bring to bear solutions that actually are helpful? And sometimes that means taking a stand, taking a position, whether it's around our social justice statement, um, whether it's you know engaging with the credit union movement to really kind of set up diversity, equity, and inclusion and engagement um, as really core to what we do and how we um, carry out our individual missions. So I've been trying to push the company to really be honorable um, and engaged around helping create change across the movement, but also um, being well steeped in equity and accessibility. Um, and, and, and that's what's been largely about, uh, and I can speak about it from my own personal position. And I think that that's been what's been most helpful for the organization because you can't other somebody who's looking right in front of you. You can't other somebody who's sitting right in front of you. And I think that my organization um, has really embraced. And now I'll tell you, you know, we have battles as well. Um, we also have that contrarian voice within our organization. Um, you know, whether you know someone is voicing something through, we have to speak freely line, which you can do stuff anonymously. So we do hear some blowback. And we often on um, through social media, whether it's LinkedIn or other places, we see some of that contrarian voice and folks um, who typically might feel threatened by um, our positions or even the focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion have voiced concern. But we're steadfast and very well grounded in, in our purpose. We understand that what we have to do in terms of being engaged in part of the change and not necessarily being on the sidelines, we have to engage. So that's why we did what we're doing. I think that's great. You know, it's, uh, you've taken a position as an organization and you've got collective buy-in and, and um, understanding that there will be some, some contrarians and, and that that's part of dealing with this journey. So, And I think part of it is that sometimes uh, organizations are going to have to uh, re-examine their value system. Mm -hmm. They may no longer work and so they're going to have to start there yeah. so that they really know what is driving their purpose yeah. is looking at their value system. Yeah. Cedric, talking about you. So when, when is the, the last time that you've had to uh, check your own bias, maybe in your personal life or your business? Do you, can you think about when you've had yes. to check Cedric and, and how did you manage through that to, to, to not ha have a negative uh, interaction or experience in that situation? You know, so I, I'll share um, a couple of things. Um, so the first thing I, I'll share is this. So one of the things that I, my own bias um, steeped in because I, you know, I'm an ableist. And uh, I think I sometimes look at, uh, you know, folks who are differently abled um, as needing help. Mm -hmm. So I've had to, one, I've been checked on that with some of my own employees. Um, two, I started to take a look at some of our own statements and some of our own policies. And I had an employee. Um, who called me on, you know, our statements don't have, you know, different, don't have a, a, an equity component around disability. So I went back and looked at our policies, 
our social justice statement. I looked at, and she was absolutely right. And some of that, I have to totally own my blinders because it, it, it was vacant for me. I did not, I didn't even see it. Um, so I had to bring those things back to the organization. We did make some changes um, where we mm -hmm. are very intentional um, about uh, including, you know, differently able individuals and thinking about disability um, and putting it, being really clear and upfront about our statements. Um, so some of, some of my job is, you know, I'm responsible for the organization's real estate around the country. Um, um, and part of that has been, you know, making sure that you have someone at the table um, who can actually tell you, one, is this workable? Is this not workable? I mean, we built, uh, just as an example, we built um, the new, a new lobby at our building in Madison, Wisconsin. We did not even think about um, accessibility other than you know, what was written in code. Um, we had an employee in a wheelchair who come to our building, brought to our attention, the way the doors were set up to open made it impossible for him to use this, this, this entrance. So now we, we won, have since changed some of those things in the construction of a new building, which we're doing right now, we're being really mindful and thoughtful about making sure that we're honoring stuff around, um, you know, making sure that it's truly accessible and it doesn't create these impediments um, for folks who might be differently abled. Um, so that's been you know, part of my own bias in, in terms of how it's showing up at work. And, um, and I will tell you this, that it has absolutely highlighted um, sure. the need for us to be more thoughtful around um, including, you know, you know, folks with disabilities, um, folks who are differently able. I think that it's, it's, it, it's been mindful now because now when you, now when I, when I'm looking around the room to see who's there, I want to make sure that it's not just, you know, us being thoughtful about it, but we actually have someone that can actually engage. Well, we know we can continue to engage in uh, many topics with you, Cedric. Uh, now we're going to move on to the next segment of our show. What's on our listeners' minds? We do have a listener question um, for our guest executive today. And yes. um, Anthony, you want to yes. read the listener question to yes. Cedric? This is, uh, again, just a random question. It's uh, Sarah from Minnesota. Sarah says, I'm the GM of a tool and die manufacturing company of about 300 people in Minneapolis. I recently learned that one of our employees is a member of the LGBTQ community and he plans to come out soon. I'm really glad he's doing this and I fully support him because it's absolutely the right thing to do. However, uh, do you have any advice for how to avoid or manage through the potential backlash? I imagine there'll be some staff members who do not wish to support uh, this position. Thank you. That's from Sarah in Minnesota. Great question, Sarah. Thank you for submitting yes. it. Cedric, the stage is yours. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, at CUNY Mutual, while we have a number of employee resource groups, um, employee engagement groups, um, I would say this, that part of the challenge for, for us, we, we also have an LGBTQ plus um, employee engagement group. Part of the challenge has been making sure that folks don't feel kind of discriminated against, uh, threatened, or even created a, a hostile work environment um, um, by employees who may feel uncomfortable. 
um, about individuals coming out from a sexual orientation perspective. I think it's important that we do all we can do to try to educate um, and sharing information um, with the, the broad employee population. Because I think that you know, too often, you know, folks focus on uh, the sexual part of you know, what if somebody's gay, uh, when if you're heterosexual, folks don't necessarily focus on that. So I think that bringing to bear some education um, about what's appropriate, about even some, some information that shares about the LGBTQ um, community is really important in terms of sharing with um, the employee population. We've done similar things at Kinney Mutual um, in terms of making sure that we try to educate um, and expose and bring awareness to our employee population. But also we're really clear about what we expect from our employees in terms of conduct and behavior. Um, and we have uh, a, a zero tolerance policy with respect to harassment, with respect to you know, bad treatment. Um, and I think that most organizations need to embrace such a policy as well, because um, I think it sets a tone for what inclusion really is. Well, listeners continue to submit your questions and comments to info at diversitystraightup.com. All right, now we're going to move on to another piece of this segment, which is our diversity thumbball. Um, I don't know, Cedric, if you've ever seen a diversity thumbball. It has all these questions, prompts on it, that um, if you were here in the studio, we would just throw the ball at you, and wherever your thumb lands, you would have to read the questioner prompt and just authentically answer it. Uh, we've done this a lot with our clients as icebreakers and they enjoy it. So we're going to do this here as well. What I'm going to do okay. is um, I'll uh, throw it to Anthony first and that's going to be your question. Okay, so great. Hope I get a good one for you, Cedric. <laughs> great, thanks. All right, your question is describe a time when you witness bias or discrimination in your life. Oh, that's pretty easy. Yeah, that's an easy so, one. Softball. So often. So often um, we participate in um, uh, leadership discussions around talent. And I often hear um, things that are described by, in terms of behaviors that are described by um, people, typically with gender bias that shows up. So you can describe the same behavior from a woman, uh, the same behavior from a man, and I've seen how bias plays out. So same behavior, perfectly acceptable for a man, not necessarily acceptable for a woman, um, I've had to call that stuff out and be really clear. Like, I'm sure we would look at this differently had this person been picked the gender. Um, so I've had to be really clear, um, especially in those um, leadership talent discussions, because it is about, you know, who's going to lead the company next. Um, so I want to make sure that we can weed out all um, bias as possible, getting the right person in the right job at the right time. Yep. Good deal. All right. Uh, we're going to play with you. So I'm going to throw this to Seneca. I should throw it hard, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> when did you first become aware of racial or ethnic differences? I think, uh, so I was born in India, Gujarat, India, came to the States as 19 months old. Uh, one of our first communities that we lived in was San Francisco Bay Area. I was too small at that time to even notice anything. Then we moved um, to Oklahoma and Nebraska. And I think um, it was when I was in school and I noticed around me how everybody um, had a different skin color than me. And I was uh, much darker than them. 
and I was the only um, Indian in that school district. I think I was the only person of a different racial ethnic background than the rest of them as they were white. I think from a visible perspective, that was the first time that I realized that I was, I looked different. All right, my turn. How do your thoughts about diversity differ from your parents? Oh, that's a tough one. Because um, they, they don't diverge too much from my parents. But I will say, as I think about my dad, um, and I, I will say this, is, this may not be the way my dad feels today, but I, can, I, know, I know what my dad was like in the 70s. My dad um, was a, a pretty uh, radical guy. Um, I would say he was a pretty radical uh, activist. Uh, my uncles and my and my a lot of my family were were pretty radical activists, um, and so I would say that I'm not as radical. I think I have a little bit of my dad in me. Um, I think I'm a, a vocal activist, um, but I would say I probably was, uh, was not as radical as my dad was at at this age. So uh, maybe maybe my maybe I'm a little calmer than he and he is, <laughs> a little more patient. <laughs> Well, thank you so much um, for sharing your thoughts, Anthony and Cedric, with the Diversity Thumbball. Is there uh, any advice that you can give to leaders at all levels uh, who are working on their equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement? What um, advice would you give them to help move them along? Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I've been uh, really critical about, even myself, is doing my own work around understand getting getting to understand my own bias, my own perspective, um, and helping better educate myself around diversity, equity, and inclusion because it's a journey. Um, and I think that folks really need to kind of grapple with their own stuff first. Yeah. Um, because I don't think you can do a genuine, authentic job at being inclusive unless you know your stuff um, or at least be open to, to the possibility that you might be biased. Um, I think that um, the thing that I've always tried to uh, talk to leaders about is doing your own work, you know, you know, moving along that journey around understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion and doing what you need to do to show up right, um, to show up in a way in which is inclusive and to do all that you can do to be a good champion at knocking down barriers to inclusion. So that's what I would say um, as for advice. Thank you, Cedric. Yes. I'm a firm believer in this journey. You are the common den denominator to yourself, to your workplace and your communities. Before you start figuring out how to do it in the workplace, we gotta start with ourselves first. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us today on Diversity Straight Up. Uh, we enjoyed having you as a guest executive. Great. Thanks. I really appreciate the invite. Thank you so much. Great. As we conclude our show, shout out to our, our sponsors, uh, Green State Credit Union, along with the Lion Energy, City of Cedar Rapids, and, and Collins Aerospace. We really thank you for your, uh, for your sponsorship. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, please continue to subscribe to our show, follow us, like us, and uh, submit questions to us at info at .com. Without you, we wouldn't have this show and uh, as well as our sponsors without your support. So thank you. And as we always say on Diversity Straight Up. Keeping it real.
Thank you to our listeners, as we wouldn't be here without your support. Help us grow our subscriber base by sharing our show with others. Love this new episode of Diversity Straight Up brought to you by Green State Credit Union? Then head over to the most popular podcast audio platforms to describe, rate, and review us. And check out our other episodes while you're there. Catch us on our next episode, which drops monthly. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. It's not enough to simply be a leader. Be a global leader by leveraging diversity with equity, inclusion, and engagement. And share your journey. This may empower others to be bold change agents. Be courageous. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union. Keeping it real. You've been listening to Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union. Additional support provided by Alliant Energy, Collins Aerospace, and the City of Cedar Rapids. For more from the Corridor Business Journal, please visit CorridorBusiness.com. This episode was produced by Joe Coffey of Coffee Grande Studios.